Please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 10, 5 through 15. I think every Christian who conscientiously practices their faith wrestles with the right approach to the Great Commission. After his resurrection from the dead, Christ told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the purpose for which Christ has left his church in the world, to go and make disciples. This is the mission of each and every believer, to strive to do what they can to advance the kingdom of God through the making of disciples. It is the mission of each and every Christian to in some way contribute to the advancement of the gospel. And this naturally, naturally leads us to thoughts of how. How are we going to accomplish this mission? How do we go about advancing the kingdom of God? I trust that you've wrestled with this question from time to time. You've looked around your workplace and you've wondered to yourself, how can I tell the people here about Jesus? You've driven through your town and maybe you've thought, how am I supposed to go about making sure that the people in this community living here with me have heard this gospel? You have the desire to share Christ, but you don't know how. You want to know if there's a right way to go about advancing the gospel, a best way to share Christ? And if so, what is it? How are we to go about this mission? Does God have a preference? Has He told us how He wants this work to be done? Well, if you've ever asked yourself these kinds of questions, then you're in luck because that's exactly what we're encountering here this morning in Matthew 10. In Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus traveled throughout the villages and towns of Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But as he encountered the many thousands and even millions of people who resided there in that region, and as he encountered the resistance of the religious leaders who slandered him before the crowds, he understood that he would need help in spreading his gospel to so many people. So here in Matthew 10, Jesus calls 12 of his disciples aside. And he commissions them to go out and preach in Galilee. But before he does that, before he actually sends them out to preach, he instructs these disciples regarding how he wants them to go about the mission that he's about to send them on. That's the basic content of Matthew 10. In this chapter, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions for how he wants them to perform the mission that he's going to send them on in Galilee. And quite obviously, this is incredibly valuable information for us. If we want to know how we're supposed to approach the Great Commission, this is a great place to start. Of course, Matthew 10 occurs before the Great Commission. Jesus hasn't commanded his disciples to go into all the nations just yet. But here in Matthew 10, Jesus is instructing his disciples on how he wants them to go on a mission, even if it's not the Great Commission. And given how Matthew's audience would have been reading this gospel after the Great Commission had been commanded, given how it would appear that many of the questions that even caused Matthew to write this gospel are prompted by the Great Commission, 
I think we're certainly supposed to read this chapter in that light. This chapter foreshadows the Great Commission, and Matthew intends for his readers to see Matthew 10 as a mission that informs and instructs his readers about how they're supposed to view the Great Commission. So what we really have here is no less than Jesus himself informing his disciples about how he wants them to do the Great Commission. This is the greatest evangelist who has ever lived teaching his disciples about how to do evangelism. This is the Messianic king instructing his ambassadors about how he wants them to distribute his message to the world. This is the Lord of the harvest himself issuing commands to his employees about the work he wants them to do in his field. I simply cannot state enough how important this chapter truly is for each and every Christian. If you want to know how to pursue the Great Commission, and if you're one of Jesus' disciples, then I trust that you do want that. I mean, it's why He's left you here on this planet. Well, if you want to know how to pursue the Great Commission, then you need to know Matthew 10. Because this is where the one who sends us on that mission instructs us about the methods and tactics He wants us to employ on it. As I mentioned in my last sermon, I've entitled these verses, Matthew 10, 5 to 15, Christ's Mission Mandates. Because Matthew begins this section by saying, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Here is Jesus instructing the disciples, and the word for instruct here carries a connotation that means more than simply just inform. It's teaching, it's new information that Jesus is providing here, but it's a teaching that informs the disciples about what he wants them to do. Essentially, these are commands that Jesus is, is issuing here in chapter 10. He's not presenting the disciples with options about how to pursue this mission. These are instructions. These are mandates explaining how he wants them to conduct their mission specifically. And this is especially the case here in verses 5 through 15. Later on in this chapter, Jesus will counsel his disciples about how to cope with the rejection that they'll face on this mission. He'll tell them how to cope with the fear that they'll face as they encounter the same sort of rejection that he faced when he ministered in Galilee. He'll prepare them to engage in that conflict with faithfulness, but all of that is just Jesus instructing the disciples about how to deal with the consequences of the mission. That's different than what's going on here in verses 5 through 15. Here, Jesus is instructing the disciples about how he wants them to perform the mission itself. He's not explaining how to persevere in the face of the obstacles of this mission. He's explaining how he wants them to advance the gospel in Galilee. So while this whole chapter accounts uh, Jesus' instructions for the disciples, it's this passage in particular, verses 5 through 15, that really informs us about how we should go about this work. Again, this is why I've called this section Christ's Mission Mandates. Here we have Christ telling us how he expects us to conduct this mission. There are three general principles that should be applied to missions based off what we find here in this passage. We're exploring these uh, three principles over three separate weeks, and today we're in week two of this study. Last week we looked at verses 5 and 6, and from these verses we learned that if we're going to be faithful to the Great Commission, then we must direct our mission purposefully. 
Today we're going to be looking at verse 7 and the first half of verse 8. And from this verse and a half, we'll see that our message must also be preached clearly. So last week we saw that our mission must be directed purposefully, and now today we'll see that the message must be preached clearly. Let's go ahead and read the passage together, Matthew 10, 5 through 15. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I said last week that if we want to understand the truth that Matthew's communicating in this text, then we have to read it in light of the larger story arc that's occurring in this gospel, as well as the historical context in which Matthew wrote it. In terms of historical context, Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians at a time when the gospel has begun to advance and make tremendous progress among the Gentiles. In other words, he's writing after the Great Commission has been issued. And even more than this, he's writing after the effects of the Great Commission have become incredibly apparent. The gospel is advancing out into the nations of the earth and, and Gentiles are coming uh, to faith in greater numbers, which wouldn't be a problem in and of itself, except that this is happening while the people of Israel are persisting in their unbelief. This is one of the problems that Matthew's Jewish readers would have wrestled with as Jewish Christians. It wouldn't necessarily bother them that uh, Gentiles were coming to faith. As Matthew pointed out several times throughout this gospel, the Old Testament predicted that. No, what really bothers them is the order of that salvation. The Old Testament predicted that Gentiles would be saved, but it predicted that it would occur after the salvation of Israel. And so these Jewish Christians are watching these Gentiles coming to salvation and in such great numbers before the people of Israel and they're concerned, they're wondering how this could happen. They're wondering how Jesus could still be the Messiah when this kind of thing is going on. And Matthew's explaining the answer to that question within the larger narrative arc that he presents in this gospel as he builds towards the Great Commission. He's explaining how it is that the Great Commission, this mission to preach the gospel to all the nations, how that could be ordered before the salvation of Israel. And the way he explains this is by saying that the reason for this order, ultimately, is Israel's rejection of the gospel during Jesus' ministry. The Old Testament taught that Israel was to take the gospel out into the nations, and during his ministry, Jesus presented Israel with that opportunity. He proclaimed the gospel to the people of Israel and called them to repent through missions like this one that we see here in Matthew 10. 
But Israel rejected that calling. They refused to embrace Jesus' message. And so in lieu of that rejection, Jesus has raised up his church, which is this other assembly of people, this people distinct from Israel, who will take the gospel out into the nations until the time should come that Israel will repent, believe, and fulfill their calling. That's the big picture argument that Matthew's going to continue to develop in this gospel. And what this means is that if we're going to understand how to apply what Jesus is saying here in this passage, and you have to read it in light of Israel's rejection of the gospel. Uh, that's where Matthew is going with this passage. The disciples are going to preach the gospel, and then when they come back, it's going to become obvious that Israel didn't receive their message. And it's that sort of rejection that's going to prompt the Great Commission at the end of this book. We're supposed to read this mission in light of that Great Commission. We should see this as a passage that informs us about how to go about the Great Commission. But the mission that you're seeing here and the one that Jesus is going to send the disciples on in Matthew 28 are different. And if you want to know what's different about them, it's the rejection of this message by Israel. That's the variable between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28 that's going to alter the later mission, the Great Commission. So if we want to apply this passage for today, we have to take principles from this passage and apply them to the Great Commission, but we have to understand that not everything in this text is going to apply to us today. There are specifics about this mission that were directed specifically for Israel at this time, which are not in effect for today. There are principles here that apply general, generally, and, and we should see those principles as applicable for today but when we encounter principles that were specific to the mission to Israel, we should attempt to apply those today in a different level, in, in this respect, and to how it translates for today. So what are these principles? Well, again, last time we looked at verses 5 and 6, and we saw that if we're to be faithful to the Great Commission, then we'll understand that our mission should be directed purposefully. Jesus instructed the disciples to go to the region of Galilee, only he tells them to stay off the highways that lead to the Gentiles and to not go into the cities of the Samaritans. Instead, they were to go specifically to the lost sheep of house, the house of Israel. And I explained that this wasn't because Jesus was intending to ignore uh, the Samaritans and the Gentiles, but rather because Jesus understood that the plan of salvation that had been outlined in the Old Testament was supposed to go in a particular order. Israel was supposed to be saved first, and then the rest of the nations. So Jesus isn't intending to exclude these people by issuing this command. Jesus has a global mission in mind here, but he sought to achieve that global mission according to God's plan, according to God's priorities. God had a particular way that he wanted the gospel to extend to the ends of the earth. He wanted the gospel to extend in a particular order with a particular set of values upheld. And Jesus understood those priorities and he pursued his mission in light of them. From this concept, I said that this passage means that if we're to be faithful in the Great Commission, then we will seek to discover what priorities God wants us to uphold in the advancement of the gospel and will honor these priorities in the way we go about the mission. And of course, I said that one way we do this is by proclaiming the gospel to all people. Whereas Jesus limited the proclamation of his message to Israel, in this particular passage, that limitation is in effect no longer. 
that restriction comes off when Jesus issues the Great Commission. Now he tells us that he wants us to preach the gospel to everyone. So if we're going to be faithful to the Great Commission, then we'll tell the gospel to everyone. We won't pick and choose to just share Jesus with people we like. We won't esteem those who aren't like us as uh, less worthy of the gospel. And so not tell them about it. Instead, we'll be purposeful in making sure that we share Jesus with everyone, with all types of people when presented the opportunity. Today in verses 7 and 8, we see the second principle explained in this passage, which is this. Our message must be preached clearly. Once again, our message must be preached clearly. When Jesus sent the disciples out into Galilee, he sent them in such a way that there would be no confusion about the message behind their mission. The message that Israel heard from the disciples was loud and clear. In what way was that message loud and clear? Well, it was presented clearly in two different respects. First, the message's content was presented clearly. Its content was presented clearly. We see this in verse 7. Jesus says in verse 7, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus revealed the intended audience of this mission. They were to go specifically to Israel. Now we see here what the disciples were to tell this people. They were to proclaim, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is actually the same message that was preached first by John the Baptist and which was then picked up by Jesus. Matthew first mentioned John the Baptist back in Matthew 3. And the first words that we ever hear from John was this message. Matthew says in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, he says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The baptism that John performed, he performed on those who are responding to this message. Those who are coming out in repentance in order to prepare for the arrival of this kingdom. And of course, John proclaimed this message in light of the coming of the one who would baptize the nation with the Spirit and with fire. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, as it's called by the other gospel writers, refers to this time when God will reclaim the earth, place it under his authority, under his rule, and he would do this by destroying the rebellion that's presently occurring on the planet. It was a time preceded by the wrath of God against sinners, his judgment against mankind, and followed by a period during which God's will would be performed across the entire earth. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God, scripturally. That's the message that the disciples are to go and proclaim. Well, this kingdom, it was also synonymous with the exaltation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen nation. The Lord had set his throne in Zion and promised to rule the earth from the nation of Israel. The kingdom of heaven, therefore, was understood to be a time during which Israel, God's people, would be exalted above the idolatrous nations of the earth after those nations had been judged. This exaltation of Israel would occur after Israel's repentance, after God had established his new covenant with the people of Israel, in which he poured out his spirit on the people and caused them to walk in his commandments. John had been sent to proclaim the arrival of the one who would establish that kingdom. 
the arrival of the one who would baptize the people of God with the Spirit and the one who would lead the people into repentance through the establishment of the new covenant and the one who would also baptize the earth with fire, with judgment at the establishment of his kingdom. There would be one man who would accomplish these things and John was sent to proclaim that he had come to the point uh, or he, that, that he had come to point the rest of the nation to him. And this is why he declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declared that the kingdom of heaven was at hand or more literally in the Greek that it had come near in the presence of the one who had baptized the nation with the spirit and the earth with fire. And he told people to repent in light of his arrival because if they didn't repent, then they would be swept away in his judgment at the institution of this kingdom. As I'm sure you all know, the man that John proclaimed was none other than Jesus. And so after John had identified him at his baptism, and, he began to, uh, and as he began his public ministry, Jesus began to proclaim this exact same message as well. After John was arrested, Jesus withdrew from Judah. He went into Galilee. And he declared, Matthew says in Matthew 4, 17, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After John's witness to Jesus in Judah abruptly ended, Jesus picked up the torch of his ministry, carrying the exact same message to what was once the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of Galilee. John hit Judah, Jesus hit the northern kingdom. By the time we get to Matthew 10, Jesus has tried to reach the people of Galilee with this message, but he's being frustrated in his efforts by the resistance of the religious leaders. And so once again, Jesus replicates himself with these disciples, telling them to go out into Galilee, preaching the same message that they would have first heard from John and then later heard from Jesus as well. While Matthew doesn't say here that Jesus told the disciples to demand repentance, we know that this would have been part of that instruction. He wants the disciples to tell Israel that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It is present in the power and authority of Jesus who can baptize the people with the Spirit and the earth with fire. And so the nation needs to repent of their sin, repent of their hard-heartedness, that they might receive the Spirit and be exalted as a people and escape the judgment of God. In short, the disciples are being sent out to tell the lost sheep of the house of Israel to turn to faith in Jesus and to seek forgiveness in Him, and to receive the blessings of the kingdom that He was offering to them. That's the response that the disciples are, are demanding more than anything else. They're proclaiming Jesus and calling on the nation to accept Him as their Messiah. What's notable here is that this is the primary reason why Jesus is sending these disciples on this mission. Don't miss this. We're going to come back to this later. While we're going to see that Jesus gave the apostles authority to perform supernatural works, that's not ultimately why he's sending them out. That's an aspect to their mission, but it's not the point. The point is to proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and call people to believe in Jesus on the basis of this message. If I could put it this way, they were sent out to preach. That was the purpose of their mission, to simply communicate the singular message of salvation through faith in Jesus. The significance of this command is that through it, Jesus made it crystal clear what was at stake 
in the nation's response to him. As the disciples go out and preach this message as the singular focus of their mission, Jesus is making it evident what hangs in the balance here as the people weigh their options and consider what to do with him. Jesus is telling the nation in no uncertain terms what he has come to do and what the consequences will be based on their response to him. If they repent and believe in him, then they'll receive the blessings of the kingdom. If they reject him, then they'll be swept away in God's wrath. Jesus isn't mincing any words here. He's not confusing the message with little side agendas that confuse what he's trying to say. The disciples are simply going to tell the people of Israel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So either repent and be blessed or face the wrath of God. In this sense, the message was incredibly clear. It's the same consistent message that has been preached ever since the ministry of John the Baptist. What the people need to figure out is whether or not they're going to accept this message. What they have to determine is whether or not they think Jesus really does have the authority to establish this kind of a kingdom. And this leads us to the second aspect of the clarity of this message. It wasn't just that the message's content was presented clearly. The message's evidence was presented clearly as well. We see this in the first half of verse 8. Jesus says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus gave the disciples authority to do these sorts of supernatural works back in verse 1. Now we see him command the disciples to go and to perform these works while on their mission. Now what's notable about this is that each of these four kinds of miracles were personally performed by Jesus over the previous two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9. Once again, Jesus is replicating his ministry here. And if you understand the significance of these miracles in light of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, then you can see that Jesus isn't commanding the disciples to do these things simply out of compassion for the sick and the demon-possessed. As a matter of fact, by the way the grammar is structured here, it's probably better to translate this verse not as heal the sick, raise the dead, but simply heal sick people, raise dead people. And the significance of this, this difference is that it would appear that Jesus is not saying heal the sick, as in the entire class of sick people. He's not sending the disciples out to heal each and every sick person that they encounter. Again, that's not their mission. They're not being sent to alleviate the immediate suffering of the people of Israel. They're being sent to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And part of this mission includes healing sick people, raising dead people, healing lepers, and exercising demons. Why is that? Why is this part of their mission? Well, it's because these are supernatural feats that are designed to verify their message. That's the purpose of these healings. They authenticate the apostles' message of the kingdom. Again, Jesus isn't sending the disciples on a mission of mercy that merely happened to include preaching. No, he's sending them on a preaching mission that included miraculous works aimed at verifying the gospel they preached. In fact, if we had time to go back into Matthew 8 and 9, then I would show you that all four of these kinds of miracles were very specific signs that communicated a very specific message about Jesus and his kingdom. They weren't merely supernatural feats 
performed in order to demonstrate Jesus' power. And Jesus wasn't just flexing his spiritual muscles when he did these things. No, each sign verified the authenticity of Jesus' claim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand in his presence. As Matthew explains back in Matthew 8.17, Jesus' healing of the sick pointed to his ability to serve as a substitute that could take on the suffering of the curse, take it away from his people. The raising of the dead, it actually pointed to Jesus' ability to pour out the Spirit on the people of Israel. The cleansing of the leper, along with the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage, it revealed Jesus' ability to remove the uncleanness that separated God's people from God and which prevented them from experiencing the blessings associated with His presence. The exorcism of demons revealed Jesus' authority to bind Satan and to neutralize His deceptive power over the nations of the earth. It pointed to Jesus' ability to judge and eliminate all rebellion from the planet as the kingdom of heaven was instituted. In short, everything, everything that was necessary to restore the kingdom of Israel to the kind of fellowship with God that would lead Israel to be exalted as the supreme nation over the earth was evident in these signs. With each and every miracle that Jesus performed, he demonstrated the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's present here in my authority. So repent and believe in me. In other words, Jesus didn't just say he could institute the kingdom of God. He proved it. He demonstrated it by doing the very kinds of things that would need to happen for this kingdom to come about. He proved he had the authority to baptize with the Spirit and fire. Now, to go and send out 12 apostles, 12 apostles who are empowered to do the exact same kind of miracles, friends, that's just icing on the cake. That cinches it. That seals the deal. Understanding what, understand what Jesus is doing here. This is more than just replication taking place. Yes, Jesus needs help. If the millions of people in Galilee are going to hear the message, Jesus can't do it on his own. And so the disciples are going to help him spread this message. This is true. But there's more than that happening here. If that was the only purpose of equipping these disciples to replicate himself, then why not 50, right? Why not 100? Why not 200? Why 12? Think about this. Jesus takes 12 Israelite men. And not remarkable men, by the way. Not men noted for their extraordinary wisdom or spirituality or anything of that sort. Just 12 ordinary Jewish men. And then he empowers them to do the exact same kinds of things that he did to demonstrate the power of his kingdom. And when he sends these 12 men out to preach to the 12 tribes of Israel... And you start to see what he's getting at here. Jesus claims that he can baptize the nation with the Spirit. He claims that he can restore the nation's fellowship with God to the degree that God will do the supernatural things that he promised to do through Israel in the Old Testament until finally the nation becomes the exalted nation of the earth, until God reigns over the entire earth through Israel. Well, guess what? Right here he proves it again. Here are 12 ordinary Israelites, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're empowered by the Spirit to do all the things that were promised to the nation in the Old Testament. 
if there were ever proof that Jesus could baptize the nation of Israel with the Spirit and institute God's kingdom through them, this is it. It's right here in Matthew 10 through the commissioning of these disciples. He can clearly empower the nation to be the nation that God called them to be. He's demonstrating it in the transfer of his authority to these disciples. So when Andrew the fisherman or even Matthew the tax collector comes strolling into your town, performing the wonders associated with the kingdom of heaven, and then says... Listen, guys, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king walks among us. Can there really be any doubt about the message they're proclaiming, either in its content or in its authority? It should be absolutely, absolutely obvious at that point that what they're saying is true. The kingdom of heaven is at hand in the presence of Jesus. And if you want to escape the wrath of God, then repent and seek the forgiveness and blessing that's found in Christ. As Matthew's audience read these verses in light of the Great Commission, the significance of this mission would have become increasingly apparent. Again, they're wondering why the gospel is going out to the Gentiles ahead of Israel's salvation. And the reason at this point should be obvious. Again, it isn't Jesus' fault. Jesus very purposefully and very intentionally sent the disciples to proclaim the message to the kingdom of Israel. Not only that, but the message that was presented to them was presented in a straightforward fashion with an overwhelming amount of evidence to back it up. So really, Israel has no excuse. They can't say that Jesus ignored them. They can't say that they didn't understand his message. He told them his message clearly and powerfully. No, the only reason why Israel has not believed, Matthew demonstrates, is because they refused to accept his message. If I could put it this way, it wasn't due to poor communication. It wasn't for lack of understanding. There was nothing intellectual about this rejection. Rather, it was a willful, intentional refusal of the heart. Knowing who Jesus was and what he came to do, the people rejected him just as Jesus knew they would. And please note that there's nothing surprising about this rejection. Over the next several chapters, Jesus is going to point out that this rejection has actually always been a part of God's plan. He had to be rejected. Until his death and resurrection, he would be rejected. The pouring out of the Spirit that brings the repentance that Jesus is calling for, that can only happen after he sealed the new covenant with his death. So Israel's just doing what we all do apart from the grace of God working in us. There's nothing unique about this rejection here that makes them any different from any one of us. All the same, the fault isn't with Jesus. It's with the nation. They refused his message out of the stubbornness of their hearts. And this is why the gospel is not going out until the Gentiles, until the time should come when Israel will repent and believe. That's the implication of this passage for Matthew's readers. Now, if we want to understand how this pre-Great Commission instruction applies to us, as disciples in a post-Great Commission world, then we need to read it in light of the Jewish nature of this mission and the subsequent rejection that would happen after Matthew 10. What do we sift from this instruction? What do we take and apply as relevant for today? And what do we set aside as instruction that was unique to this particular mission? Well, clearly we should not understand that we're given the authority today to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. 
That was unique to this mission. When Jesus performed these signs, it was meant to communicate that Jesus had the authority to convey the blessings of the kingdom to Israel. These blessings that had been promised to them. In the Old Testament, God had told Israel, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, that they shouldn't accept just any person who comes along claiming to speak for God. First, they needed to test that man to see that what he said did indeed come from God. And part of that test would include signs such as these. Further, God had communicated his intent to give this kind of a blessing to Israel, the kind of blessing that you see on display in these miracles. So when Jesus is performing these signs, he's doing so because it communicates a very clear message to the people in accordance with the predictions and regulations spelled out for Israel in the Old Testament. This is what's so often missed by those who want to claim that this kind of empowerment is still in effect for today. These kinds of miracles were never given to wow or to entertain people. And they they weren't given simply to make life in the church easier. In fact, the miraculous gifts weren't even given for the church at all. But for unbelievers and for unbelieving Israel, primarily as Paul says regarding uh, primarily as Paul says regarding the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 and 22. If you have a moment, maybe flip over there with me, 1 Corinthians 14, 20 and 22. Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by a people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, Paul says, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And just so you know, it does not say there, actually, that prophecy is a sign not for believers, but believers in the Greek. The word for a sign actually isn't there at all. It just reads, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. In other words, what I'm trying to get at there is that prophecy is not necessarily a sign. It's not intended to be that. Now, you could insert sign there legitimately, that's okay, but the text doesn't dictate that. And depending on your translation, it probably doesn't even say that. It may indicate that. Anyways, the point that Paul's trying to get at in this passage is to tell the Corinthians, you're exercising these tongue gifts in the church, this miraculous sign... And these aren't even for the edification of the church. That's not why they exist. They're a sign to unbelievers to repent and believe in the gospel. And if you catch how he makes that point in context, he establishes that they are a sign not just to anyone either, but to Israel in particular. Look at verse 21. Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's a reference to Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, where God speaks about the hard-heartedness of Israel. There's, this is a prediction that in the day of the Lord, God would even demonstrate His power through a people of a foreign tongue, that is, through Gentiles. He would demonstrate His power through them, and even still, Israel would not listen. It was a sign specifically to Israel to demonstrate their hard-heartedness in need of repentance. Clearly then, Paul says, this isn't something to be practiced within the church. 
It was given as a call for repentance and to Israel specifically, not to the Gentile church. Do you know what signs God has promised to give Gentiles in order to verify His message? Nothing. There are none. At least not outside of the power that He demonstrates through Israel. To be completely honest, you want to know how the Old Testament predicted that Gentiles would come to know that the God of Israel was the one true God? Do you know the sign that He intended to show them in order to prove the truth of His message? It was the exaltation of Israel. It was the exaltation of God's people. When Israel's boot was on the Gentiles' neck, that is how the nations would come to understand that the message that He handed down to Israel was true. You really need to get this. In fact, the fact that you and I believe in Christ right now before the exaltation of Israel is, from an Old Testament perspective, an incredibly uh, unusual anomaly, unexpected, surprising anomaly. Again, that's what Matthew's readers are struggling with when he wrote this gospel. The fact that so many Gentiles are coming to faith apart from Israel's exaltation is, biblically speaking, pretty strange. Because that was supposed to be their sign. In other words, if you're a Gentile like me, then the miraculous empowerment of the sign gifts simply aren't intended for you. They weren't promised to you. In fact, even when you see Gentiles receiving this kind of empowerment in the New Testament, even then it's intended for Israel. And that's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 14. And the same thing happens in Acts 10 and 11 when the Holy Spirit pours Himself out on the household of Cornelius, causing his household to speak in tongues. If you're paying attention to what goes on there, Cornelius' belief is there to convince Peter and the rest of the Jews that even Gentiles can, can participate in the new covenant promise. It was a sign for Israel. It wasn't for Cornelius. So we don't come away from this passage saying, well, we should have the authority to do all these miraculous things. Not even in an evangelistic context should we expect this. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen sometimes. I'm just saying we shouldn't expect it. There's simply no precedent for it. This sort of empowerment is not an essential part of the mission that we've been sent on to all the nations of the earth. It's not essential to the Great Commission. What we do take away from these couple of verses is that the message that Christ has sent us to proclaim must be proclaimed clearly. We should understand, for instance, that the content of our message must be clear. Jesus has sent us with one message to preach, and that's the gospel. We proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message is still in effect for today. The kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus. He possesses all the authority needed to institute the kingdom of God. So repent and receive his forgiveness and blessing or face his wrath. We preach the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. We preach Christ crucified to sinners. That's it. That's the message of the Great Commission. In other words, the message we preach is not Jesus has come to help you live a happier, more fulfilled life. It's not that He has come to help you have better marriages and more well-behaved kids. It's not that Jesus has a purpose for your life if you only let Him have control. Now, I'm not saying that these things aren't true. At the same time, 
Yes, Jesus does have a purpose for your life, which is to glorify him. Yes, he will help you have a better marriage and perhaps even more well-behaved kids. Yes, you will live a happier, more fulfilled life in relationship with Jesus than outside of him. But that's not why he died. And that's not the message that the disciples were sent to preach. Jesus died in order to reconcile sinners to God. And that's the gospel that he sent us to proclaim. We proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't come preaching politics and social change. We preach, rather, the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we don't come telling everyone how Jesus is going to transform the society around us. Rather, we come telling people how they can participate in an entirely new society instituted at the reign of Jesus called the kingdom of God. If you want to know why I don't preach politics from the pulpit, this is why. Jesus didn't die to transform this age, this society. He died to transform sinners. And this doesn't happen through legislation, but through the preaching of the gospel. We have one resounding message that we proclaim in the Great Commission. And that is the power, authority, and forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. We preach the love and grace offered in Jesus' death and the power and authority displayed in His resurrection from the dead. And in the end, this is enough. Contrary to what so many think today, you don't need to depart from this one central message in order to win people to Christ. You know, over the past several weeks, we've been discussing the proper way to respond to this overwhelming challenge that's in front of us in the Great Commission. We see these billions of people who don't know Christ, and we think, how are we ever going to reach them all with the gospel? And many respond to this challenge by saying, well, we've just got to update the message. We need to pick something that's a little bit more relevant to our modern times, like how Jesus helps us with our finances or something like that. Get them to come to church that way. <coughs> Let's set aside for a moment that there is no more relevant message to proclaim than to tell lost and dying sinners about how they can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And let's even set aside for a moment that we literally have no other message to preach. Jesus hasn't given us that option. We can only preach this one message that he's given us. Even setting these things aside for a moment, let's at least agree that we don't need to proclaim any other message but this one. Because God is able to save anyone with this simple declaration of this unadorned gospel. We don't need to respond to the world's hard-heartedness by altering this message. Because at the end of the day, it's God that provides the heart change needed to produce faith and through faith salvation. It was for this very reason that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He knew that the Spirit was able to give life to those he preached to, and so he didn't dress it up. He didn't try to make it uh, attractive according to the world's standards. Instead, he says he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He preached one message and one message only, making sure that the content of that message was presented clearly and without any sort of distractions to cloud it. And he did this because he knew this was enough. He knew that God could produce the needed result. 
And this should be our attitude as well as we pursue the Great Commission. We preach a singular message, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the coming of the kingdom of heaven in Christ, salvation through his name. And we do this knowing that this message is completely sufficient to save those who will believe. So if we understand this message rightly, then we understand that we must proclaim it clearly. And this means making sure that the content of this message is this singular, consistent gospel. But it isn't just the content that should be clear. The evidence that supports our message should be clear as well. Jesus may not send us out into the world empowered with the same kind of authority that we see with the disciples in this passage, but this isn't to say that there shouldn't be any clear evidence to back up the kinds of claims we're making. It just takes a different form. The apostles went out performing these signs and wonders because ultimately these miracles served to fulfill this scriptural expectation. Jesus sent them out in this way because it actually proved that he was, what he was claiming matched what the scripture claimed. In other words, the signs corresponded with the scripture in this sense. Jesus was pushing Israel back to the scriptures, actually. And this means that if we want to follow in his footsteps, then we're going to go to the scripture to verify our message as well. To put it simply, if we want to be faithful to the Great Commission call, and especially in an area such as ours that's so thoroughly saturated with a partial knowledge of the Scripture and a distorted picture of the Gospel, then you'll become a student of the Scripture. You'll come to know your Bible so that when you present the claims that you're making about the Gospel, you can substantiate them with Scripture, with text, chapter and verse. Listen, you've got to spend time studying the Bible closely if you want to explain the gospel clearly. Because at some point you're going to be faced with resistance. People are going to push back and say, that's not what the Bible says, that's not what God says. And you need to be able to demonstrate your claims from Scripture. Don't simply proclaim the gospel clearly, but substantiate it with clear evidence, clear proof to your claims. Of course, this kind of evidence isn't only going to come through what you say either. It comes through your actions as well. If you claim to come in the name of God, proclaiming a message of life, transforming love and forgiveness, then your life better reflect the truth of that message. I mean, do you know, you say that you uh, represent the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven has come near in the person of Jesus. Do you know how you can best substantiate that? It isn't with signs and wonders. It's by acting like a kingdom citizen. Don't just say that Jesus is going to institute another kingdom in the future, a better kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, without any of the pains and horrors of sin, and that you belong to this kingdom by virtue of your faith that you exercise through the power of the Spirit. Don't just say that. Prove it. Demonstrate it by living in the power of the Spirit. And how do you demonstrate that. How do you show the world that Christ has the power to pour out the Spirit on mankind? You want to know how you're going to show the world that He's resurrected from the dead and currently reigns at the right hand of God? It's by walking daily in the Spirit in obedience to His Word. There is your proof of the Spirit. Again, it's not signs and wonders. It's by daily living under the power of the Spirit as you're conformed into the image of Christ. Listen, when people see that, when they see you being progressively changed in the image of, into the image of Christ to the degree 
that you begin to love with an otherworldly sort of love, when they see believers demonstrate both righteousness and grace and patience, patience in the face of sin to the degree that they actually start to mirror the character of God in the way they live, that's what proves to them more than anything else that what you're saying is true. It's that kind of lifestyle that removes the excuses of even the most hard-hearted sinners. So present the gospel clearly and provide clear evidence to his claims, but not just with words. Do it with your actions. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. This is how Jesus sent out his disciples. He instructed them to preach their message clearly. They were to not only direct their mission with purpose, but they were to preach their message with great clarity. And so if we want to fulfill our calling in this mission, we'll heed these instructions and do the same. We'll stay on point by proclaiming the singular message of salvation by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we'll substantiate these claims both through the testimony of the Scripture and with the witness of our transformed lives. Of course, when you follow these commands, when you preach this message in this way, eventually there's going to be people who start to get upset with you. The message that declares that the, that the, the, the condemnation of all people apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ is never going to be a popular one. It will offend more often than it will please. So when we follow Jesus' instructions here, we're going to be met with resistance. What does Jesus want us to do in that situation? How do we respond to the resistance we face as we proclaim the gospel? That's what Jesus is going to start to get into in our next message. As we look at the final principle that we discover here in Christ's mission mandates. So if you've ever wondered what you're supposed to do once you present the message clearly, once you substantiate it clearly, and then you reject it, I'd encourage you to come back in two weeks for part three of this series. We have one last directive to go in this passage, and this one's going to inform the disciples how to spread this message broadly in the face of opposition. And this is, I think, very helpful for very many Christians because I think many Christians don't know what they're supposed to do when they encounter that kind of opposition. They don't know what's expected of them. Well, Jesus is going to answer that for us. He's going to show us what he expects, what we should do when that happens. So I'd encourage you, please be sure to be here as we work through this dilemma together in part three of our series in two weeks. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.